Blog Talk Radio. edition of the Old Dominion Libertarian. I'm here right now with Jeff Klebb. Jeffrey Sanford has the night off, and Andy Craig is going to join us momentarily. So, Jeff, how goes it tonight? Same as usual. You know, one day older and one day closer to death. <laughs> and I just wondered, why does, <laughs> Monday have to, why does Monday have to come so early in the week, you know? Uh, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah, why? Um, 
So we got a lot going on tonight. Our guest is going to be Nicholas Wildstar, the uh, Libertarian candidate for governor of California. And I trust that you had a chance to check out his website, Mr. Kleb. I did. Great. So you, you're all lined up with your questions and um, things you want to know about how a libertarian is going to get elected in um, California. Uh, Diane Feinstein is going to cast the winning vote. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, Barbara Boxer will. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. Um with Donald Trump being in favor of gun control, they may run in the opposite direction, so they may end up voting for a libertarian. You never know. <laughs> mm. But so, um, uh, with that being said, uh, Donald Trump has done some crazy things this week. He met with Democrats and voiced his opinion for gun control, and he said the U.S. is going to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. So if you're going to buy beer, you better get it while you can. What do you think about mm-hmm. that, Jeff? Well, nobody ever wins a trade war, and all people need to do is remember something called Smoot-Hawley. Um, there are a lot of secondary and tertiary effects that are going to come from this because it seems like you're protecting maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 jobs in the steel industry, but you could jeopardize millions of jobs in other industries because – you're going to make products more expensive. And, for instance, cars or washing machines or even buildings, people have to spend more money on that. That's less money to have to maybe go out to dinner or take a vacation. Or buy, or, or, or buy, a, buy, or buy a race car. Well, yeah, buy a, buy a race car, buy any anything other consumer goods. So then that means that you may go out to eat less often. Now that waitress who relies on your tips and your money, she's going to be – making less money. Um, Also, it's going to have a situation where other companies are going to retaliate and put tariffs on American products, not necessarily steel, but let's say motorcycles or beer or textiles, um, engines, diesel engines, anything like that. And then that's going to um, cause a market distortion. And you're going to have prices artificially higher. Yes, Trump says that's fine. If they want to do that, then he'll just retaliate again. He said nobody's going to Yeah, and that's what got us into the Great Depression. That helped to get us into the Great Depression. Nobody wins a trade war. You can't – you're not going to say, well, we're going to screw the people in our country, so, well, then the other people are going to screw the people in their country, and then everybody will end up equally poor. It almost sounds, you know, Donald Trump, in in that regard, he sounds almost like Bernie Sanders. Well, that sounds like something Bernie Sanders would say. What do you think about the argument that that a lot of Trump supporters are making that he's calling their bluff, that he announced the tariffs early so they would quake in their boots and they would relent and and do what he wants them to do? Well, that's that's a bad way to play the game. Um, because that's going to just make him. But he wrote a whole book about never, that, though. Oh, the art of the deal. The art of the deal. That this is taken right out of. If if he's actually doing that, and he's following through on what he said in his book. So you think he's trying to snooker him? Well, I don't. I I I think he has no clue about anything, and he's just, you know, 
he's like, no, hey, I hate, I hate to say it, but it's like Ronnie Millsap trying to drive a car on the freeway. Hmm. You know, I, I, I <laughs> you know, that I, would be an interesting I, sight. Although he could probably drive better <laughs> than half the people in Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I just, I. The thing is, you know, let's say that that's what Donald Trump was was doing. He was, you know, he was trying to call their bluff. The amount of damage that he's already done is just terrible. I mean, the stock market fell like 400 points. I mean, you don't screw with people's livelihoods that way to make a point to other countries unless you're just batshit crazy. Well, look at what happened with the auto industry when we put tariffs on imports. Did General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler lower their prices? Did it make anything more affordable to consumers? No, not at all. It just made them, they pocketed the money, they had less competitors, and they could build crappy stuff and people would still buy it. And uh, the Japanese had to kick our auto industry in the teeth before they turned around and started building things better. And then the Japanese now, they build stuff here too. Well, the thing that, um, that, that I was talking with someone else about today is the fact that, that cars can't be brought into the country, into the U.S. from other countries, for like 25 years after they're manufactured. Well, and that's not really – no, no, that's not true. You're thinking of gray market vehicles, vehicles that are not made to U.S. specifications. We import cars here every day, but you're talking about I, exactly. a, an item, a, car, a gray market exactly. car, one that was not U.S. spec. Yes, it's 25 years. My son my it's, son it's, has a friend who has right-hand drive. Um, it's a Nissan – I think it's – I don't want to – it's not a Skyline. It's another one, but – it kind of looks like a 240SX. It's a right-hand drive car meant for driving on the left, as they do in Japan. It's a Japanese domestic market vehicle, and it doesn't have some of the safety specifications that are required in the United States, like airbags and bumpers and things like that. And he had to wait 25 yeah. years before he could bring it here. Yes, you're right about that. Exactly. He, he did. Um, but there, there are all sorts of other things aside from that. That that we as a country put on cars that are coming in here from from other countries, and and I'm not just talking about General Motors having a plan in Peru or Belize or somewhere like that. I'm talking about actual car companies that might make a car to U.S. specifications that aren't based in the U.S. and they want to bring a car here. They can do it, but we have a lot of barriers involved in that. And if you're a U.S. auto manufacturer, you're going to love that. You're going to want more of that. I mean, they, there was a guy on YouTube one time that worked for General Motors, and they were asking him about a car that was made by some European car company, and they had made a bunch of models to bring into the United States. But they once they got here, they were so costly that nobody was buying them, and they were very fine cars. I don't remember what they were. But um, they were saying, you know, they can't sell them because of all the stuff that's piled on top of the cost of the car for them to be You're able probably to referring here. to the Skoda. You're referring to the Skoda. It's a, I believe it's probably. a Czechoslovakian car. But 
um, I don't know. It might, that might, it, it's been a while since I watched it, but nonetheless, the General Motors guy was was basically saying, well, we we don't want that to go away, because as soon as these other car companies are in other countries are able to make cars and bring them here cheap, you know, people are going to start buying those, and they're not going to and and they're not going to exclusively buy ours. And I was thinking to myself, well, that's the free market. That's when you turn around and say, well, what do we have to do? to make air cars more appealing. Well, they're also, don't forget, there are other countries that put restrictions on our vehicles, too. And tar- they, they have do. tariffs on and our cars. For instance, they China, and they, can build, they can build a Buick in China and bring it to the United States as long as it meets our specs. And I don't believe there's an import duty on it. But if we build a Buick here to take the Buick to China, there's like a 20% duty that the Chinese government puts on it made in the United States. That's why Buick builds more cars in China than they do here. Now, that's a well, trade barrier the, problem. The, the, the Chinese want American-made vehicles. But the, the, the thing is, regardless of what other countries do, doesn't matter if they, if they put 50 tariffs on a product, we shouldn't be putting any tariffs on a product. Tariffs we should get them to reduce idea. the tariffs on ours. We need to get them to reduce the tariffs yeah, we, on ours. Should, I got another even, example for even you. If they, yeah. Even if they, even if a, they won't yeah. reduce the tariffs, we shouldn't be putting tariffs on things. I mean, that's just not a good idea. Well, you know, that's, then that's it's not free that's trade. That's my opinion, and it's it's free trade. It's not it, it it's not free trade when the government gets involved. Period. And so, air. Well, what about Airbus? Out of it. What What about Airbus? Airbus? They subsidize the company of Airbus, and we don't subsidize Boeing. So then, Airbus it makes our products artificially more expensive than theirs. See, that's that's a tar- that's a backdoor tariff. You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of weird shenanigans that go on just besides tariffs. I got another example for you. There's a car called a Ford Fiesta. You're familiar with it, correct? Oh, yeah, they my built them here in the United States. Years ago. Okay. Well, that, that's the old one that looked like a Volkswagen Rabbit, but the new Ford Fiesta came out in the U.S. market in 2011, 2012, and they make one here in the United States. They build them here, too, but they make one that has a three-cylinder, I believe it's a diesel engine. It gets over 60 miles to the gallon. They build it here in the United States, but you can't buy one. Okay? Now... There's some government regulations involved because the way we do emissions testing, they do it in emissions per just regular tailpipe emissions. They don't do it in emissions per mile. So the vehicle looks like it has more emissions than it really does, so it can't pass the emissions regulations here. Whereas getting that many miles per gallon, it actually pollutes less than a bigger diesel engine does, but the bigger diesel engine is considered by the EPA to produce less. It's because of bureaucratic mismanagement. And so we have, it's not yeah. just tariffs. There are other regulations that make we can't sell that product here. And I know there are people in the United States who would easily buy a car that's built here that gets 63 miles to the gallon, but because of the EPA, they can't buy it. Ford can't well, the, sell it to them here. Well, Ford also can't the, sell the, you the, the Ranger the here. Fiesta, yet. The, 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 the Fiesta was sold here for a while in recent years. It is sold here, but you can't get the one with a three-cylinder diesel engine. That's what I'm Correct. saying. You can buy the car here, but you can't get that engine in it. It only goes to the European market and the Asian market because of the way they do emissions well, testing here. They measure it in 
tail, strict tailpipe emissions per gallon of fuel, but not per mile. So the emissions per gallon is higher than the emissions per mile because the car gets so many miles to the gallon. Whereas realistically, you pollute less when you drive that car because you're burning less fuel, but your emissions per gallon are more, but it burns fewer gallons. It's just a bureaucratic rule that makes no sense. And there are probably somebody, there's probably somebody somewhere who lobbied for that legislation or that rule to be in there, and it never went through Congress. The EPA made that rule, and that's causing people not to be able to buy the vehicle of their choice. And it's made here. It's built here. They don't even have to import it. They can only export it. It's just asinine. Yeah. You know? So it's not just tariffs. It's, it's other regulations and things that create market distortions that prevent something from getting to the market. Or that, you know, if you have a company who makes good cars, it costs them so much money because they have to crash test them and do all these other things. And I kind of get, I get the logic behind that, but it takes, it's not worth it for companies to do that. It keeps products out of the market, which cuts down on competition and cuts down on the consumer choice. So it's more than just tariffs. But we do need to get other yeah, countries to reduce their, their barriers to our products because well, everybody wants access to the U.S. Case. market. Yeah, everybody wants access that's to the U.S. market, but they want, to keep their, they want to keep our products out of their market. Well, that's not fair. That's totally unfair. You know, you want fair trade. You hear all these left-wing people talking about fair trade. Well, that's the first place to start. Although what they mean by fair trade is something different than what you and I would think of as fair trade. Their, their, their definition of fair trade is totally different than ours. Well, the, the United States government should get out of, out of the business of dealing with trade. And what I mean by that is if General Motors wants to sell their cars in Pakistan, they should be allowed to do it, and the government shouldn't say a damn thing about it. If, if um, Cadbury eggs, the little things you get at Easter – if they want to, they want to open up a shop in in um, uh, Czechoslovakia or wherever, and and they should be able to do it. And the U.S. government should not be getting involved. The problem is the U.S. government gets involved and they say, well, this country has a tariff on us and this and that. And you know these companies should be able to work together. And if some other country doesn't want to play by air rules, then air then our company should be the one to say, we're going to pull out and not do business with you until you even the playing field, not the U.S. government. I know I'm, that's Well, the only lot, problem but. is when you have, you have certain companies that are behind making the playing field uneven. You have companies who lobby for well, restrictive you might, you trade might, policies. That's, just, that's life. That's, you know, and, and it's never going to be free trade as long as the government is involved, and they're deciding what can happen and what can't. That's not free trade. That's government-imposed trade. But well, you also have government-imposed trade where you have corrupt – you have private businesses that have corrupted the government, like ConAgra, Archer Daniels Midland, and people like that who have corrupted people like Charles Grassley and um, another one from out there. I can't recall his name, but they forced the mandate for ethanol in the fuel. And, yes, it's government regulation, but that regulation was brought about by private companies. And then the leftists will say, well, that's capitalism. No, that's not capitalism. That's cronyism. Capitalism is me being able to decide whether I want ethanol in my gasoline. I don't. I want it in my liquor cabinet. 
Cronyism is where private companies <laughs> get the government to force me to use ethanol in my gasoline, even though it cuts on my fuel economy and can possibly damage the engine in an older car. See, that's cronyism. That's, but they'll say, well, that's capitalism. No, that's cronyism. I don't think people really – capitalism doesn't mean the same thing to people that it means to me. You know, cronyism yeah. is not well, capitalism. And, you know, I just yeah. – but we can't so have it – you, you, you can't have it one-sided. Yeah. Well, we're going to uh, get to our guest now um, and hope that Andy Craig joins us in just a moment because I know he's got a lot of questions he wants to ask, as always. And they're always insightful questions and um, get right um, to the heart of what we're talking about. So I'm hoping he's going to join us soon. But our guest tonight is uh, Nicholas Wildstar of California. He's running for governor as a libertarian. And um, he's a very interesting candidate, has a, a very interesting um, career path. Um, uh, as far as I can tell, he's never been a politician before. So um, he gets an A-plus in that category for me. Um, so let's bring him on and find out a little more about his campaign. Uh, how are you doing tonight, Nicholas? I'm doing spectacular. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the, you inviting me on the show. Wonderful. Welcome. Uh, we'll, Hello. We'll just All right. Go welcome. Ahead and, Thank you. We'll go, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and get get dive right in and just get you to tell us about your campaign. Why are you running for governor as a libertarian? And what are some of your key uh, platform issues? Absolutely. Well, I'm running for governor as a libertarian because I believe the principle of liberty is really missing in our politics right now. It seems as if the uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, the Demopublicans, <laughs> don't really seem to respect that principle in itself. Of course, here in the state of California, we have raising gas prices. We have raising um, electricity costs, food costs, housing costs, and it's all being created by those um, crony capitalistic policies that you guys were just speaking of. So we see this taking place in both the two parties, and they're really just a reflection of the old way of of doing business, the taxing and spending, um, taking taxpayers' money and spending it inappropriately, um, as well as doing it fraudulently, <laughs> uh, but there's just tons of misrepresentation in politics, um, not only when it comes to our money, but the people themselves. These people that we tend to elect um, always seem to advocate for the middle class or for people that are dealing with um, homelessness or any type of um, drug abuse issues, but have never experienced it themselves. They've never had any direct relation with any types of issues such as that, and even with money itself, they tend to have less of an appreciation of it because none of them had to work hard for it. They don't know the value of a dollar. So it's easy for them to wastefully spend taxpayers' money. So I'm running for governor because I would love to have an opportunity to be an actual representative of the people of California. I myself, I've been a working-class uh, American for over 20 years now and um, have been 
working also as a community activist uh, during 2010, around uh, around then, I got very involved in the Occupy movement with Anonymous, and um, as well as gotten involved in um, Dr. Ron Paul's presidential election. So hearing him speak about free market enterprise and the role of government and them not being involved in people's choice to get married or have an abortion or what kind of property they want to buy, whether it be a gun or a car. It seems as if, again, government is dictating all of those facets of our lives, and they shouldn't be, according to the Constitution, first and foremost. So it's just getting back to the element of having the people, uh, the people in government actually um, people of the community and have a government of the people by the people for the people. So I ran for governor in 2014 as an independent and um, got quite uh, quite a lot of notoriety from that campaign. However, now with me running as a libertarian, since it is the third largest party in the United States, it gives me an opportunity to incorporate those um, those new wave ideas in a platform that will allow me to incorporate um, those type of policy changes as well as minimize government's role in our society. Well, that's great. Um, Did I lose uh, you there? I, I like okay. everything you've, you've said so far. All right. Thank I you. find it interesting that you came from, uh, you seem to have come from the left side of the spectrum being involved in the Occupy movement, but I have, I, I come to the libertarian from the quote-unquote right side of the issue, or the right side of the spectrum, but I I have to respect some of the people in the Occupy movement have a lot of the same frustrations and anger as the people in the Tea Party movement. They may disagree Absolutely. on the solution, but the anger, I found that the anger is exactly the same. They're tired of the corruption, the cronyism, and things like that, and I think free markets are the way to handle things, not socialism and more government. But I Absolutely. understand the anger of the people in the Occupy movement. I totally, totally I'm a blue-collar guy myself. I totally understand the frustration. Um, well, so that's I kind of interesting of things, I read in your bio. Oh, great. Okay. Well, I think one of the things that people aren't really too familiar with about the Occupy movement is – um, it kind of broke off into this democratic socialist group that became supportive of Bernie Sanders and socialist ideals, thinking that government should pay for everything and education should be free as well as health care, et cetera. But then also at the same time, you had those people that actually knew the truth <laughs> and did their homework and found out about free market enterprise and how money policy works and understands how economics actually works in our country. So we know better and we understand that pretty much the best way for us to accomplish having lower prices for food or gas or electricity or rent even is to get government out of those industries. And um, I actually moved out to California from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and to pursue a career in music and um, got quite a bit of notoriety doing that as well. Um, my first album, The Real, has been um, distributed worldwide. It's 
now available on Pandora, iTunes, Amazon, etc. Um, and one of my songs is in the movie Scary Movie 4. And I just created a new album, which I'm hoping to use as a way to connect with the people of the community and the people of the state of California to let them get to know their candidate in a more entertaining way and a more thorough dynamic of what I would like to say to them, um, just straightforward. And that's because a lot of the politicians running, they promote demagoguery, they use a lot of fear-mongering, but they don't really get down to the bottom of what is really the problem. Mm -hmm. And the majority of them tend to get down to money, 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 whether it's homelessness, whether it's – you know, rising costs for housing, rising costs for health care, et cetera. It all boils down to the amount of taxes we the people are actually paying versus the amount of money that being is being collected by us and being spent by government. So um, I'm hoping to use my skills as a musician and the personality to connect with the people of California again and let them uh, relate to them in a manner to where I'm able to express the ideals of how they, if they want to get away from the um, constraints that government has placed upon them, that the best way is to start anew and that way is to vote libertarian. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's a speaking, kind of an interesting way to look at it. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, speaking of voting libertarian, how hard is it to get on the ballot in California? Actually, it's not that hard. Um, the best thing about the Libertarian Party of California is they did a lot of, of footwork during the 70s to actually make um, make headway and have the party be recognized. So we do receive not, um, statewide recognition and are able to get ballot access. However, each candidate's Mm -hmm. campaign is independently funded. Because the Libertarian Party doesn't take any special interest monies, per se, um, we don't have the tens of millions of dollars that the Republicans and and Democratic Party tend to have to throw away wastefully on their candidates. For instance, here in the state of California, which is a blue state, um, you have the Republican candidates now being propped up by the Republican Party only to know that they're going to fail. They're, you know, they're not going to have an opportunity to win, especially with factoring in Trump, et cetera. <laughs> uh, they, oh, pardon me. They're not going to have an opportunity to win the majority of the people in the state to overcome the democratic system that has been in control. So because Mm -hmm. we do have a top two contender, uh, which is a recent law that was just passed back in 2010, it's, it's in primary that will allow all people to run no matter what your party is, but the top two candidates to get the majority of the votes, popular votes, end up proceeding through to the um, November election. So it's a possibility Mm -hmm. that we could either get two Republicans or two Democrats more than likely to win the majority in the June primary, which means come the general election in November, everyone Mm -hmm. will be stuck to choose between those two. So uh, that's pretty much the the, um, uphill battle that the libertarians face here in the state is just first being able to get over that first hump of being able to um, 
connect with voters and let them know that there actually is a, a party that will best serve you. And then, again, to be able to overcome that two-party system to proceed to the general election. So mm-hmm. my goal is to take advantage of the lower low vote, voter turnout that the state has experienced in its midterm elections in the last mm-hmm. gubernatorial race. There was maybe about um, 3 million people total that ended mm-hmm. up going to vote in the June primary and Walked away with a little over a million of this, those votes, but his Republican opponent only got a little over eight hundred thousand votes. So, mm. with the with the two gubernatorial uh, top two gubernatorial candidates being from the Democratic Party, it's uh, again a strong likelihood that they can end up garnishing um, uh, probably about a million votes between the two of them. And which means, and since there's more Democratic candidates, there's a possibility that it could be split even more. So if 2 million people show up to the votes in the June primary and uh, the lieutenant governor who's running for governor, Gavin Newsom, and the ex-mayor of Los Angeles, Mayor um, Antonio Villaraigosa, they end up getting about 500,000 votes each and splitting that million voters to show up. The other million voters that show up will go to whoever else is on the ballot. And since a lot of people in the state that I've been speaking to are pretty much fed up with the two-party system and they're fed up with the democratic control that um, created the largest poverty level in our entire nation out of this state, although we collect the most in tax revenue, they see it as being one uh, a government that is incompetent. So they want to get away from it all, and they're not going to be able to pull enough, you know, uh, Republican voters. So I'm, again, encouraging everyone in the state, if you want to get rid of the two-party system and do something different, you have to vote different. In this case, it would be to vote Libertarian. Excellent. I had a question on your – you said you wanted to abolish – you know, you favor free choice – and it said you wanted to abolish registration of private property. Well, in a state like California, how do you do that? Do you mean not have to register your vehicle? Precisely. I mean, okay, so if you don't register, your, you mean like no license plates on a vehicle? No, you're, you're welcome to do so if you want to voluntarily, but it won't be mandatory. If I want to put on my car private property, then I – would have an opportunity to conduct my vehicle and drive it without being under jurisdiction from police. Our police department is enforcing policies that should not be. When it comes to commercial law, um, commercial law should only apply to commercial businesses or commercial drivers. Um, So in the case of the driver's license, if I'm issued a commercial driver's license, then I should be only using that vehicle for commercial purposes. So that would be a, a truck driver, a bus driver, you know, someone using the, biz, uh, using the vehicle to make money. Other than that, it's private property. So if I decide to drive my car down the street with no license plates, without riding, riding, uh, having a seat belt or <laughs> any of that matter, it, it shouldn't be anyone else's business except for mine. Um, okay. If I well, then, to what about my uh, vehicle? Okay. What about insurance, and what about having a driver's license? 
I was just about to say, if you wanted to insure a vehicle, you're welcome to go to an insurance company and provide them with your VIN ID number, which would be a chance for you to register your vehicle, which you're doing with your insurance carrier now, only the government isn't involved. It's not making it mandated, which is something new here in the state. Um, It was new to me when I first moved out here from Wisconsin because we didn't have those laws up until 2010 when insurance lobbyists pretty much pressured the um, officials in the state of Wisconsin to pass those types of laws. So there was a time when we used to drive cars before insurance was mandatory, before you needed to have a license plate, before you needed to be issued a license. I learned how to drive from my parents. My father taught me how to drive when I was nine, okay? So (laughs) I I was driving cars at 11 and 14. You know, my mother would give me the keys and say, park the car in the garage. You'd drive around the block, you know, um, waving to all of your friends and then finally pull up in the garage five minutes later. So those were my first few experiences of learning how to drive. I knew how to drive in the snow at um, 14 years old, opposed to where people out here in California, they couldn't, they can't drive in the rain for the life of them. Some of them. That is true. So (laughs) um, you being issued a driver's license should only be between you and whoever is requiring that information. Government should not require that information. Your employer, however, what if you want to drive drunk? If you want to drive drunk, then you have to, you're going to have to deal with the repercussions of being an irresponsible driver. But people do that even with the driver's license, even with car insurance, and even with their vehicle being registered. So the amount of regulations isn't preventing people from being irresponsible. People need to start being grown-ups, start taking responsibility for themselves, and when you do something that harms someone, you're going to have to deal with the uh, repercussions of that. So if anyone were to drive a car and hurt someone or, um, uh, what is it, harm someone else's property or something like that, then they would have to pay for it. Yes, and but that's supposing you're driving, you're, driving a, you're driving a 97 Hyundai and I have a 2018 Honda and it's your fault and you damage my car, but yet, mm-hmm. you know, you're unemployed or you don't have any assets or no money or whatever – and you injure me and my vehicle, how am I supposed to be made whole again? I'm playing devil's advocate, of course. I hope you realize that. But um, these are questions that people are going to ask of you. And, you know, sure, I trust no me, having just deal, I just had to deal with getting my car fixed because I got hit by somebody who did not have insurance. And I have to pay extra on my policy to pay for bastards like that. And mm-hmm. it's happened to me twice in my life where I've been hit by somebody with no insurance. And nothing happens to them. They have no consequence. So I'm playing by the rules, and I'm making sure that I'm covered. And I also have a CDL. And when I'm at work, I have to have a million dollars of insurance mm-hmm. in a commercial vehicle. But there's all these, you know, you're dealing with people who have to play by the rules and not other people who don't. And especially with the fiscal mess that California is in, California makes a ton of money on vehicle registration and taxes. I know they tax you to death for everything out there. Right. And, you know, I understand trying to to make that easier, but you're just opening up a situation where 
you know, people are going to put, even if you assume you got that passed in California where you could put a tag on your car that said private use, well, you're going to increase criminal activity because somebody could commit a crime and leave and everybody's car doesn't have a tag on it. You're not really going to know who it is. Um, you know, that's you not, a, that's a, not true at all. Again, you have that VI, that VIN number. The majority of the cars today have are made with GPS units in the car. Um, mm-hmm. It's just an improvement improvement of law enforcement doing their job and actually doing investigative work to find out uh, find those criminals. You're right. A crime could happen. Someone escapes the scene, but how often does that happen when? Police isn't still able to track down the vehicle, despite it being registered, um, despite there being a witness. So these rules and regulations aren't really preventing these crimes from happening. And we're seeing the same thing happen with gun control, despite the amount of control that they're putting in restrictions on someone being able to protect themselves. You still have criminals who want to harm someone. So. Thinking that California is a fine example of that. <laughs> exactly. California gun laws, yeah. But then of what course. would you do? How would you handle that if somebody's in California, your vehicle's not registered, assuming that law passed, and then they drive into another state? What if they drive well, then they Nevada? have to deal with that other state. <clears throat> exactly. And, and then because they, they know that what they're doing is in the state of California, you are welcome to drive around and travel freely without having your right to travel be infringed. However, of course, other states have their own laws. Their states, you can go across the border in Nevada and you can gamble. You can't do that here in California. You can go across the state into, um, what is it, Texas, and you can carry your weapon openly. You can't do that here in California. So people are aware of what the laws of the land is and what the main law of the land here in California needs to be is the constitution. It is not. You have all these arbitrary laws and taxes being created pretty much again that are um, unlawful and the state does not have jurisdiction over one's personal property purchases. So if, if someone goes to buy a car and um, if my employer requires for me to um, now use a vehicle or now obtain a driver's license in order to use one of their vehicles for commercial purposes, then that would be the only requirement that I would need to adhere to, opposed to if I went to a car dealership, bought a car, drove it off the lot, and then crashed into somebody, now I owe you. And even if I did... Uh, or um, even if I did purchase car insurance, and or you purchased car insurance, and I crashed into you, if I didn't have the money to pay that bill, me, uh, what what good is it, is law enforcement going to do? Are they going to force me to pay you? Are they going to throw me in jail if I don't pay you? So they're pretty much just glorified bill collectors, opposed to your insurance company doing the prosecuting and going through the justice system to actually um, pursue costs for you. That's what you're paying your insurance company for. So that's what I mean about um, adults taking responsibility for themselves is I know that if I buy a car and I want to make sure that I'm covered and someone else is covered on the road, I'm going to purchase insurance. 
Now, if, if, if I can't afford to, then I shouldn't be forced to. And that's exactly what's happening in the state. But if you're, if you're not forced to and you don't buy the insurance, then you could end up harming somebody else. And then that's because I, I, I know how bad I used to be a cop, too, here in Virginia. And we have a huge problem with people driving without insurance. And people mm-hmm. get hurt and maimed and killed by people driving without insurance. It's a bad problem. Now they've cracked down on it somewhat. And some states like Pennsylvania have no fault insurance where basically everybody's responsible for taking care of their own vehicle. And right. that's supposed to theoretically cut down on costs. I don't think it does, but that's theoretically it's it supposed does. to. It, it does because it then like what you're talking about, if you were in, a, in an accident to where if the other person didn't have insurance, then your costs go up for your insurance. That's not the case. With the play, uh, with being in a place to where no one is being forced to get that insurance, that's what it's for. Is because accidents happen. So, yeah. um, statistically, there are tons of people that get in tons of accidents that have uh, vehicle insurance. The amount of people that do not that actually lead to what you're talking about, where it's uh, some sort of violent outcome, the person got harmed in some way and or died are very few and far between. And you, you even said so yourself, as a law enforcement official, when you went out, you saw tons of people going uh, driving without car insurance. Were they harming anyone during, during that stop? Most likely not. Um, so, And the majority of traffic stops for law enforcement in the state have to do with either someone being pulled over because they didn't have the um, up-to-date tags on their car or they didn't have license plates on their cars. But it it didn't um, prevent there from being a crime happening. I myself, I've been pulled over several times innocently, didn't do mm-hmm. anything wrong, but only because either my tags has was expired or I didn't have a license plate on my car at that time did the police feel like he had authority to pull me over, ask me where I was going, demand uh, I show him the driver's license and proof of insurance, which should be optional, and ended up letting me go about my way? Well, 99% of the time we did too. We didn't really, we didn't have an aggressive, I worked for a sheriff's office and we, we were not very aggressive with traffic enforcement, but some counties really, really push their officers to turn paper and write a lot of tickets and generate revenue. Fortunately, our sheriff was not like that. Yeah, that's all I know. I lived lived there when I was seven, and I got out, thank God. But, (laughs) yes, it's just – it's absolutely horrible, and it becomes a whole cottage industry. Traffic enforcement a lot of times is about revenue. It is, and most honest cops will admit that, you know, most of them who are honest. But, you know, you look at – your your gun registration, okay, and the stuff going on with that. They got people to register their guns and then later declared them to be assault weapons. Now they have right. them registered, so then they basically have a confiscation. And I know that's what one of the things Diane Feinstein wants to push on everybody else, and they say that things that start in California end up harming the rest of the country. And I think libertarianism would be good for California. I don't don't know if I'm totally with you on the vehicle registration thing, but I understand your line of thinking. 
I do understand well, your would, line of I thinking, would, and that's interesting. I would say this. You know? Everything that I'd like to do as governor will be in baby steps, only because I know the mindset of people. They're, they're locked in this false sense of security, and they think that if you open the barnyard door, all of a sudden all of the foxes will come in. Instead of going out and exploring the field for themselves and seeing that there are less threats than we think. So because the new gas tax that was just passed without anyone having a choice or being having any um, representation towards against that taxation, um, mm-hmm. it included vehicle registration fees, uh, fee increases. <clears throat> Excuse mm-hmm. me. So in essence, by me getting re- repealing that gas tax, I'd also be reducing vehicle registration fees for people. So now, once you remove the the costs, then you can start to go to remove the mandates that make it um, annual and mandatory. And then now people, instead of them, they get to see the money saved in their bank accounts. And now, since they now know that they have the option to, they can choose for themselves if they want to go out and actually purchase those things. So these are years down the line, but within the first year, I would love to, again, repeal that gas tax and remove those mandates on making sure, um, or um, on increasing vehicle registration fees. What about sales tax and income tax? Sales What's your tax, stance on that? Like, well, the sales tax in the state of California de- differs depending on which city you're in, which municipality, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I would love to level the state's sales tax to at 7%. Um, it is currently, I believe, 7, 8, uh, something like that, 7.58%. Depends on where you are. And again, yeah. depends on where you are. But the average, again, is is around that amount. If we make it flat at 7, then it would, again, give an opportunity for consumers to be able to purchase more goods at a cheaper cost, as well as provide business owners to provide those um, services or products at a lesser price. Income mm-hmm. tax, it is it's currently being tied to so many things, but um, it, of course, when you get down to the root of it, will be end up being because of some mismanagement of funds like the high-speed rail project that is now toppling almost $2 billion in taxpayers' money. So that's $2 billion in taxpayers' money being wastefully spent. Yet, again, if we have an opportunity to leave it in people's pockets, that will give them a chance to be able to buy a more affordable car. So, the current income tax is 13%. I would like to reduce that to zero. Um, that way we can be a zero income tax state like Texas and Florida, other states in the union that get to enjoy um, this type of liberty. And I would love for the people of California, no matter what your income bracket may be, whether you're making $1,000 a month, $100,000 a month, or a million dollars a month, you shouldn't be having your income taxed. And I believe by allowing the people to keep their money, the state of California will become wealthier. We're currently now almost the sixth largest economy in the world. There's a way we can move up that bar. 
And the way we move up that bar is allowing the people of California, its businesses, to become more prosperous opposed to its government, which is restricting it. And when you factor in the cost of high cost for living, et cetera, pushes us down to number 11. So, um, again, there's ways to where we can remove that level of, um, of uh, protection that is preventing us from being able to move up another level. And then you'd have to work on cutting spending as well. Of course. The two go hand in hand. Um, exactly. Government, government spends in the state of California hundreds of millions of dollars, nearly $400 million for the, for the latest budget that Gary, Jerry Brown proposed that the next governor will end up hopefully wanting to reduce. But with the Democrats looking like they're in position to pick up the the tab and pretty much just pick up where Jerry Brown will leave off, we can expect more of the same. So the level of poverty in the state will continue to rise. The level of tax revenue taken from the people in the state will continue to rise. But what also mm-hmm. will rise will be the, the level of wasteful spending that we see throughout the state, like with people like Janet Napolitano, the UC um, president, who wastefully spent and threw away $200 million during the audit. They inquired about where mm-hmm. it went, and she's not being compliant in assisting them. So these are... These are just ways to where, again, if we cut the number of mm-hmm. spending, uh, cut the amount of spending, as you said, and allow people to keep the more money, then we'll see a mm-hmm. substantial amount of growth in the state economic-wise. That's true. What's, what's your stance on uh, the Second Amendment and on uh, school choice? Well, with the Second Amendment and uh, as well as school choice, I would just say I plan to uphold the United States Constitution and allow the people to choose for themselves and every right protected in the Constitution that the government should be respecting, like their right to protect uh, themselves and bear arms, I would make sure every state official in the state would be upholding any legislative um, uh, policies that get offered to me while I'm in office will be vetoed if and unless it supports uh, constitutional carry for the residents of this state. And I definitely mm-hmm. believe there needs to be a restriction in the amount of regulatory bans, such as the button ban and um, assembly bans, etc. They all just need to be removed. Good. So you don't believe in the stuff about magazine capacity and all that nonsense? Oh no. You can you can watch a video on YouTube, people, where you can see someone using a six shooter and they can fire off those six rounds in a matter of seconds. Reload oh, and the do it all over shoot. again. Yeah, single action shooting. Those people are amazing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> those things are amazing. I don't know how they do it. I can't fire my Glock that fast. <laughs> but I know what you mean. Single actual shoot, single action shooting. Yeah, cowboy yeah, guns. Exactly. So the magazine capacity isn't preventing a a crime from being any more violent than it would be if it were any other type of standard weaponry. Um mm-hmm. I believe the the gun culture itself, the 
embrace of it and the um, the revelation of it just kind of needs to be changed. We need to start appreciating life more, appreciating one another more, um, show more communal acts amongst each other. Then maybe in which case we may want to get away from wanting to harm each other in any way, whether it be with a gun, a knife, a bat, or with words. Um, so I think there just needs to be a change in the in the mentality of society and its embrace of weaponry and glorification of it, especially when it comes to movies and TV shows. You know, you see so many um, types of entertainment where a gun is being used or a video game or such. So it's being embedded into the minds of our children. And if anything, I would ask the parents to step up to the plate and start showing their kids how they need to take more of an appreciation for life. And especially those that go out there and hunt. I personally do not like guns and (laughs) would love to see the world be rid of them, but I'm not going to force anybody to. Now, if I want to train my child to use a weapon, I'm not going to take them out hunting because I respect all forms of life, even those that we see lesser than ours. So, um, Taking them out to go shoot a deer or something like that, I wouldn't even do. Not even a rabbit. But um, training them to be able squirrel? to protect themselves into no, <laughs> I don't even like squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like seeing them around trees, and I, I don't want to see them on the barbecue pit neither. I mean, I'm yeah. from Wisconsin, so I've seen barbecue squirrel, and uh, <laughs> it does not look delectable at all. Um, but if that's your choice, fine. You know, there's people I've met um, out in Palm Desert to eat rattlesnake, and I don't want any of that, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you're fine to do what you choose, and I think that's where government has gotten out of control as well as attempting to dictate all of our choices, whether it be, you know, what kind of weapon that we have or what school that we may go to. I don't think government should be involved in dictating where parents should be spending their school, uh, um, sending their students, and any type of um, regulatory regulations for that school district should be left up to the parents uh, of those students in those communities. So it's it's letting the powers that be be left up to those locally and then the state backing off and allowing the people of the state to live peacefully. Well, right now I just feel like I want to break out into a rendition of I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 well, that sums up a lot of libertarian thought pretty well right there that just basically I think you just want to leave people alone. Exactly, and that's what the first um, the first thing that, as a libertarian, you swear to is to uphold the non-aggression principle, which I think we as people have naturally gotten away from. We've embraced being aggressive. We've embraced being offensive. So if we got to the point to where we started respecting each other and allowing each other to be individuals – as long as we not we're not harming anyone, um, then what business is it to anyone else? That's live and let live. Exactly. 
You know, well, I think you should be running. I think you should be running in. New, you should run in New Hampshire, not California. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think there's a lot more people of California that feel exactly the same way and would love to see a lesser controlling government. They would love to see more money in their bank accounts. They would love to see more food on their plates and um, not have to pay a million dollars for a two-bedroom house in Simi Valley. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's just ridiculous. So if we give them an opportunity to actually know that there's someone and a party, a political party, um, a group that is a political arm, that's available to you to create these changes, then I think they'd be more excited to want to vote for um, for mm-hmm. whoever may represent that. And we know that the Republicans and Democrats, again, fictitious, fictitiously present this to the public. So as a libertarian, I'm able to stand on that principle of liberty and have that be, you know, um, my cornerstone of where I start and end my um, my policies. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, Joe, um, do you have anything? I, yeah, I do. Um, Nicholas, what's it like to be a libertarian in California? What are your meetings like? Um, uh, generally, how many people show up at meetings when you have them? And do you find that people, when they learn about the party in California – that they're receptive to it, they're ambivalent, or or how do they react? Well, the Libertarian Party of California is quite broad. Um, it spans throughout the state, Northern California, Santa Clara, um, Central California, as well as down here to Southern California. I stay in Orange County, and there's a small chapter here. Um, I've been touring throughout the state, meeting with um, members throughout the state, at their committee meetings, et cetera. And there tends to be an average of about 10 to 15 people at each group meeting. These are, again, um, paid dues, member libertarians. You know, in the party, we have the little L libertarians and the big L libertarians. So the little L libertarians, the people that are registered libertarians in the state, we have nearly a quarter million registered libertarians in the state. Not all of those are party members. So the people that actually are involved that are volunteers because again we don't have paid positions everyone's volunteering their time to advance the cause of liberty so um, these are people that are hardworking have families uh, themselves and that are taking time out of their day-to-day lives to make this happen so um, they're very passionate of course <laughs> and yet at the same time there is a uh, uh, a lackluster there, and that tends to that tends to stem from the amount of libertarians that have actually gotten elected. You know, um, it is a bit disheartening when you're running for such a cause, and then you fall flat on your face. You know, in an election, mm-hmm. you only get one percent, or um, you don't even make the ballot. I myself, right now, I'm facing having to pay $4,000 to get onto the ballot by Wednesday or else the people of California won't get a chance to vote libertarian uh, or vote for me as a libertarian in the uh, gubernatorial race. So um, when it comes to bigger offices, bigger seats, 
they shy away from it. They're more supportive of those people that would like to run for a smaller office. So, But it is a restructuring happening here in the state amongst this party. You have a lot of older libertarians, as I said, those that were around, you know, when the party started here back in the 70s versus the newer libertarians, those that are um, anti-government, anti-establishment and here wanting to pick up where they left off and um, are now picking up the that torch of liberty. So um, we see an influx of younger people coming into the party. I myself, I'm, I'm black, so <laughs> uh, which is a rarity amongst the Libertarian Party in itself, and especially here in the state of California. So I'm doing my best to get more people of color involved into the um, Libertarian Party. I think that's definitely where we'll be able to make our mark, especially with it with us being in a Democratic-ran state, which tends to um, lean on the votes of the people of uh, of people of color in order for them to get elected into office. So if we can present more diverse candidates and um, just be more reflective of the true makeup, the true, you know, um, population here in the state, then we'll have an opportunity to get more candidates into office. So it's just a matter of, mm-hmm. at this point, us actually winning. And I think that's the case with every libertarian group amongst the amongst the nation is we're going out there, we're pounding the pavement, we're talking to our friends and family about how we can become more liberated as people, about how we can live a life without taxation or government coercion or intrusion, yet we're not proving ourselves. The way we're going to be able to prove ourselves is by getting candidates not only on the ballot, but getting them into office. And that's going to take us rallying behind each other all over in order to push each other up up this mountain. Um, We can't expect each other to just do it alone. So there still needs to be a coming together and a galvanizing of liberty-minded people in order to achieve that. So, um, again, I definitely see that happening here in the state of California and would like, of course, every other state to follow suit as well. Wonderful. Well, what starts Um, in California might go elsewhere. Right. I would love to stay to California. Oh, pardon me. I was going to say I would love to turn the state of California gold. It would be one of the first in the union, and I'm pretty sure with um, candidates like Larry Sharp, who's running for governor of New York, and um, Corey, Corey, who's running for governor of Texas, if we are able to turn our state's gold, I'm pretty sure it would be only a matter of time where the entire nation follows suit. Well, that sounds like a plan. And uh, before it you go, I, I would like to um, get you to tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about their, your campaign or if they want to volunteer or donate money or donate their time. Just, just tell them how they can get in touch with you. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, please, definitely, anyone everywhere out there, visit my website, wildstar2018.com. That's W-I-L-D-S-T-A-R-2018.com. Of course, you can find out more about me as a candidate there if you live in the state of California. 
And also, if you do live in the state and would like to get involved as a volunteer, I am looking for people to get involved as staffers, help with phone banking, help with neighborhood outreach, just going door to door, talking to your friends and family, sharing information about me on social media, all of that stuff helps. Um, and it's stuff that you can do for free. So you don't need money to help as well as become active. We need more active people in the party. We can't just talk about the message of liberty. We actually have to be out there um, pushing that message and uh, showing it in our day-to-day lives. So be an active libertarian. And also, of course, Um, If you want to put your money where your mouth is, that would definitely help. Like I said, I'm looking to get on to the ballot. I'm in need of donations. Um, The money mark is $4,000, so if you would like to donate, you're, again, able to do that on my website, wildstar2018.com. I'm also crowdsourcing through CrowdPack, so if you go to CrowdPack, that's crowdpac.com and enter in Nicholas Wildstar or Wildstar. You'll be able to find me. You can donate there. But um, it's just a matter of everybody getting involved at this point. We can't sit around sitting on our hands any longer. We see the degradation of our country happening. We see the um, the falling apart of our neighborhoods and our friends and our families and, and our own lives. So if we want to preserve our health as a nation and as a person, um, then we definitely got to start doing something different. And we got to start using preventative medicine. (laughs) And that would be to change what we've done, the harm that we've done to our country, and get rid of the two-party system and bring in a new party. I heard that. Wonderful. Well, we've enjoyed having you on, Nicholas. And we'd love to have you back again soon, hopefully after you get elected and you're sitting in the Oh, right. I would love that. (laughs) Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and good luck with your campaign. I truly do appreciate it. And thank you, everyone. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for listening as well as having me on to the show. So I appreciate your time and wish you all the best. And, of course, don't forget to vote Libertarian. Excellent. Good luck, sir, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You guys take care. Peace and blessings to you. Good night, sir. All right. Thank you. You too. All right, Mr. Clab. Heck of a guy. I like him. Yeah, yeah. Very, very well spoken and um, articulated the libertarian principles extremely well. One of the best we've had that's done that. Um, mm-hmm. So um, almost makes you. I didn't hear any statism. I I didn't hear any statism at all. No. Uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, you didn't. Mm. So, um, well, I think that's going to do it for our show this evening. Um, all right. We had a we had a good guest, and uh, sorry that Andy couldn't make it, but there's always next time. So, um, you have a good night, Mr. Cleb, and. Um, you too. We'll do it again at the end of the month. You take care. Talk to you later. All right. Good night.